Hey, this is Leslie, host of the Rogue Ones podcast. Thank you for listening to this show. You know, I did this limited series in 2018 and 2019. The world was a wildly different place, but knowing that people are still listening to it now and benefiting from these stories brings immense satisfaction. So thank you. If you want to keep up with my own rogue adventures, you can follow me on Substack. Yes, I have one too. An easy link to find that is leslieethompson.com slash Substack. I write on there frequently, but then I'll also post audio vignettes that don't fit into a typical podcast framework. I've been busy, and I bet you have been too, Rogue One. So thanks for tuning in, and I hope to hear from you soon. Now, here's the episode, and I hope you enjoy. You're listening to the Rogue Ones Podcast. I'm Leslie Eiler Thompson. I'm the host and curator of this limited podcast series featuring 22 extraordinary Rogue Ones doing fascinating things. These folks have lives that are truly remarkable, and people like you and me, we want to learn from them to build our own remarkable journeys. This episode is the final installment of the series, and I'm glad you're here. Our journey kicked off in episode one with singer-songwriter Jordan Shellhart, the youngest of all the rogues I spoke with, and today's final episode introduces you to the oldest rogue featured on this series. This episode was my end game, and this guest ties our entire rogue exploration up in one beautiful bow. is a Vietnam veteran and lives every day with the reminder of his time serving our country as he manages non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which he contracted in Vietnam, as many did. Barry's life was a winding road of chasing all the things that seemed to be paired with what many call success, money and power, running from the things that make our rogue hearts beat but that take a willingness to look into our own darkness. Barry felt rejected from the very beginning of life, and that rejection drove him for most of his time on Earth. You see, Barry was adopted, and today we celebrate adoption, we welcome it. It's normal and wonderful, but when he was growing up, it wasn't understood. There were some stigmas. Some of my friends in my very early days of growing up in a small little town found out about it and, and teased me quite a bit because I was the only one bouncing around that uh, had been an orphan. Uh, maybe today it's called bullying, and I wasn't really bullied, but I was teased. And sometimes they do it to make themselves, or they think they're making themselves look like the hero or the big guy to other people, or maybe even to their girlfriends or something. I, I That's don't an know. interesting perspective. Less about making the other person feel small and more about making themselves feel big. Could it be, but that's hindsight, you know, mm -hmm. things that I've thought about over the years, but it hurt. I'm sure it did. How did it change the way that you, or I guess, how did it form the way you went through life? I went to Sunday school and I went to church, you know, with my adoptive parents. And I always believed in God, but because of that initial thing with the being teased, it impacted me in such a way that I felt, well, first of all, I felt that I'd been rejected by my real parents. Mm. And then to be teased in such a way, uh, I felt that I had been rejected by God. I didn't reject him. I felt that he had rejected me. Mm. 
And uh, uh, it's something that just got built upon over the years that it's not that I stopped believing. I guess I uh, subconsciously put him out of my mind. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your adoptive parents. What were they like? He was a uh, engineer with TVA. She was a housewife. Uh, they had no other children. She was not able to have children. He had been a, a Navy CB during World War II. I think he was 35, 36 when they adopted me. She was 30, 31, 32. They were very loving. I guess growing up, though, I always had this thing in the back of my mind that I was adopted. Why? I mean, what happened to me? Why wasn't I good, good enough? Because some of my friends were teasing me that I didn't have a real mommy and daddy. You know, I called them mom and dad. I didn't, I didn't know anything else. Mm-hmm. But they were very supportive. Uh, That's interesting you say that about adoption and people, people teasing you because of it. Well, now it's a beautiful thing that I think a lot of people celebrate. It is, but again, I go back to sometimes you do things to hurt other people thinking that it's making you feel better about yourself, and it's just not true. Mm-hmm. So Barry began life by being teased at the expense of others' insecurities, and he concluded that not only was he rejected by his parents, but he was rejected by God. He grew up thinking this way, and after high school, he spent a summer as a counselor at a camp for physically disabled children and adults. He was paired with a kid named Mike, and Mike asked him a question that summer that was seemingly irrelevant, but planted a seed that would take decades to take root and grow. He had been living, he was 21 at the time, he had been living in a home for the incurable since birth. Here was a young man, his body was twisted in such, it looked like a pretzel. I mean, he was, mm-hmm. it was almost like he was still in his mother's womb. He uh, had a wonderful mind. He always had a smile on his face, always laughing. And he had one neat talent I've never seen before. He had a monogram peace shooter with his, I mean, the <laughs> name was monogrammed on it. <laughs> He'd say, Barry, put some peas in my mouth. I'd put three or four peas in his mouth. And normally he'd do it at lunchtime or dinner time when we'd take everybody into the hall to eat. He'd wait till one of the other counselors maybe was lifting a thing of peas to their mouth and he'd shoot that pea shooter and <laughs> blow the peas and beans. He was the hero of the other campers. So they you just, two were uh, causing ruckus around the camp. Yeah, but Mike, I had to do everything for him, literally everything. I was getting him dressed one morning, and he asked me a question that I have never, ever forgotten. Now, when he first asked me, it didn't strike me as much as it does in hindsight. He said, Barry, people can see my disability. What's yours? The only thing that myself and most people think in that situation is, I'm perfectly healthy. I've got all my faculties. I can do whatever. But Mike was seeing it something in me at that young age that I didn't really realize until much, much later in life. And I thought, that young man was wise. And what he had seen is that I had no spiritual being to myself whatsoever. I had no, at that time, 
no real joy, and I had no spirituality about myself. He saw me as a human being, hmm. just devoid of joy. Wow. Maybe he saw it in my eyes. Maybe he saw it in my how fast I was. Maybe it seemed like I was trying to get him ready to go do things so I could have a good time. I don't know. Yeah. But does that question change you? It did immediately. After, I I just passed it off as. I'm perfectly healthy, and I just went on with the day's activity. Barry went on to receive a full-ride scholarship to East Tennessee University, and his life of epic rogue proportions continued. But in this case, rogue means more than just someone deciding they're making their own path. In Barry's case, rogue means he was wandering and lost. Barry had a collegiate athletic scholarship, but he flunked out of school when he focused more on fraternity parties than homework or basketball practices. So having grown up on a lake, Barry did what came naturally and got a job in Florida as a professional water skier. He did this for a couple of years before getting perhaps the most life-changing piece of information a young man could receive in the 1960s. It was a wonderful, wonderful job. And then I got uh, this notice from Uncle Sam. You know, they still had the draft at the time. I ended up uh, going in the Army, and the rest is history. How old were you at that point? Uh, 20, 21. 21. I wasn't there the full year because I was pretty, I was wounded. I had been a, a company commander of an infantry company, and um, I left, or they sent me back for surgery and rehab, and <clears throat> after many, many months, uh, I got out they assigned me as a notification officer to notify, knocking on doors on behalf of the Secretary of the Army. I regret to inform you, your son, your husband's been killed in the Republic of Vietnam. How many I, doors did you end up knocking on, do you know? Too many. I had tremendous survivor guilt. I mean, being the company commander in the field, I already felt a tremendous responsibility when you might be on a trotter. It's a trail. And... You have to make a decision, do I go right, do I go left? Do I take my company which way? And if you get ambushed and somebody gets hurt or makes the supreme sacrifice, I felt obviously personally responsible. Notifying these families to look into a mother's eyes, I already felt responsible for him dying, and now I'm telling the mother and to watch that grief, and I just felt... The pain that I am bringing into other people's lives is—it was—it was overbearing. I mean, it just consumed me. And you're thinking about a young man that had given up their life so that the rest of us could live free, and uh, it just—it uh, ripped me up mentally and not physically, but it ripped me up pretty bad. Mm-hmm. In his book, The Power and Blessings of a Sunrise, Barry includes a letter he wrote to a gentleman he called Herman, who he met while in Vietnam. This letter is powerful, and it chronicles most of his life from youth to perhaps the most pivotal moment of his existence decades later. Here's a snippet. Throughout my childhood, I attended Sunday school and church, if for no other reason than that's where my friends were. My friends, 
finding I was adopted, soon started chanting and teasing me by singing, Jesus hates Barry, this I know, in the same cadence of, Jesus loves me, this I know. And then they laughed and teased me that God didn't love me the way he loved them. A couple of my friends even resorted to calling me a bastard. You know how kids can be many times, teasing another thinking it will make them a hero in their friend's eyes. Herman, I decided if God was going to reject me, I'd just reject him right back. You have a letter to a gentleman named Herman yes. in your book. Can you tell me about Herman? Yeah. You know, we call our, we called ourselves brothers, and we truly were. And I never had a brother and sister, but had I had one, I couldn't have loved them more than I did Herman. He was my shadow the entire time that I was there as a company commander. He carried a radio, and at other times, you know, he was always over helping someone else do something, particularly if it was uh, getting to be nighttime and we were stopping somewhere to set up ambushes or something. He was willing to do anything for anybody. And he had this picture. He carried it inside his helmet. And his, his fiance was absolutely not dead gorgeous. I mean, the picture. Hmm. And he'd stare at that thing. And I allowed him to call me Barry. No big deal. I didn't care. He said, Barry, when I get home, I'm her man. She's always saying that. I'm her man. You know, you hear this over and over and over. And it wasn't that it was irritating, but then again, it was. Okay, (laughs) you've made your point. It's been week after week of every day seeing this. Oh, gosh. I finally said, so I started calling her man. And I finally just got shortened to Herman. (laughs) And uh, we were together through some, obviously, some firefights, some loss of our brothers. He was always the first when Medivac would arrive to help get the wounded, or unfortunately, those who made the supreme sacrifice onto the helicopter. He had a very close relationship with God. And I don't even think I appreciated it at the time. I guess I had rejected God, and I mm-hmm. hadn't studied God. But he was always in prayer in his own little way. Even if it was under his breath, he was always praying, but he was always praying for others. you know. And uh, he would try to talk to me about God, but I just wouldn't listen. I, I didn't understand it. I had never read the Bible. It, I guess I was still rejecting God. Because you first felt yeah, rejected yeah. by so I, 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 so I thought, well, I'll just continue rejecting him right back. Barry goes on to write in the letter, Our helicopter had been damaged by incoming bullets and exploding rockets. I was lying on the jungle floor with a crushed leg, unable to move, and feeling that I was being used for target practice by the enemy. Being wounded in the legs and stomach, a small piece of an exploding grenade sticking in bone between my eyes, my blood was everywhere and you covered me, never receiving a scratch. You stayed with me until you could carry me to the medevac helicopter. I had gotten wounded and uh, wasn't able to walk, but I, I, I guess I was in and out of consciousness for 
maybe a couple of hours before they could get the helicopters in. I wasn't the only one that had been hurt, uh, but I distinctly remember Herman carrying me to the to the helicopter. And after I was medevac first to Japan and then back to the States, uh, I heard that uh, Herman had made the supreme sacrifice when they had been in a very severe firefight. He had already rescued a couple of his brothers, and he went out to get the last one, and he was evidently, the young man was pretty severely hurt, and Herman covered his body with his, and he was mortally wounded. When I learned you had made the supreme sacrifice, there was a deep crevice in my heart. Remembering our talks about family, my listening to your foreign language about God, and your fiance have echoed in my memories ever since. So you mentioned Herman had this very strong relationship, strong he did. walk with God. He did. Uh, he was always trying to, to get me to pray with him, and I rejected even that. Mm. He knew I felt bad at times after we'd lose someone, and he'd, Barry, you need to pray with me for him, and I just couldn't do it. Mm. You couldn't because you didn't know how, or you couldn't because you had become I, I so calloused. God had rejected me. Mm-hmm. He's not going to hear my prayers. Who am I? Mm. I was a bastard child. I just, I felt worthless. If this is your first time listening to the Rogue Ones podcast, I'd like to welcome you and invite you to listen to the first 20 conversations preceding this one. Barry is our 22nd guest, and he completes this limited podcast series focusing on rogue ones. These rogues are extraordinary, and they're doing fascinating things with their hearts focused on remarkable living. They're not interested in the shortest path of least resistance. They're interested in building their own path, and the wisdom they share helps those of us who aim to do the same. You can find more information on all episodes at RogueOnesPodcast.com. Now, back to my conversation with Barry. After Vietnam, Barry returned back to a civilian life, only to be met with riots, protesters, and labels. Being labeled a drunk, a drug addict, and a baby killer along with all his other veterans. Where other vets turned to alcohol or drugs to cope with this rejection by the country they were serving, Barry turned to money and business success. Barry went on to build a long career in corporate America, ruthlessly chasing after the American dream to become true for him at any cost. What happened when you got out, as you say? What did you do next? I knew that I didn't have a college education And society seemed to define the word success as all kinds of money, the right house, the right clothes, the right car, you name it. You had the quote-unquote right thing. Uh, So I thought, well, that's what I'll do. So I went into the quote-unquote corporate world. I had established a goal for myself that 
when I was 39, I was going to be at a place in my life where I didn't ever have to work for anybody else, not the Army, not business, not anything, that I would have the wherewithal, the finances to do whatever I wanted to do. And if I didn't want to do anything, I could do that as well. About 3 p.m. on my 39th birthday, I said, that's it. And I called my boss in Italy and said, I had given him warning. But I said, that's it. And I stayed on for uh, four or five months to work with a successor. Remember, Mike, that kid who asked a hardened, athletic, proud, 18-year-old Barry, what's your disability at the summer camp? Well, that question never left Barry. It laid dormant, and it didn't awaken and reveal itself until after Barry ended his career in corporate America and was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, cancer that riddled the Vietnam veterans from Agent Orange. Then, a sunrise changed Barry's life, and Mike's question from decades before presented itself again. So you, you had come to a place of career success, and in 39, you walk away from it. Um, and then you survived through non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I still have it. You still have it. Where were you when you were diagnosed? Tampa, Florida. Now, I had been having some problems, medical problems, and I had been going to VA for several years trying to get them to do something, do a biopsy, do something. And uh, I finally, they have a psych ward. And I had heard that if you go admit yourself, say you're going to hurt yourself, you're going to hurt somebody. So somebody said, Barry, go to the psych ward, say you're going to hurt yourself, they'll admit you, and then you can get an appointment. I couldn't even get an appointment with the doctors. I did. And as soon as I was admitted, I whipped out uh, a couple of doctor things that, had they still wouldn't do anything so i finally went to a civilian doctor and he did a biopsy i'll never forget his word he said i hope you have good insurance that's the first thing he said to you he said your form was caused by exposure to some type of a chemical somewhere were you ever around anything i said i'm a veteran i was in vietnam he said you ever hear of agent orange Mm -hmm. sure i went back to the i'm gonna hurt myself Thing, and mm-hmm. I took his biopsy report. They uh, did another biopsy to confirm. They say, by golly, you got it. <laughs> so they wanted well. to do another confirmation. They sent me to very prominent, I guess, cancer center. Um, they died, They confirmed it, and they're the ones that said, uh, you got it, stage four. There's really not anything that we can do. We can keep you comfortable with pills. So go on home. And I was divorced at the time and uh, so that's what I did several days later mornings about I don't know around three o'clock in the morning I went out to the beach and uh, I was scared I was mad it was one of those mornings the stars were so bright the moon was out so full it was almost like daylight and I looked up and down the beach and I'm the only person out there again it was uh, about three o'clock in the morning, and I'm standing there, and I guess tears were coming down my eyes. 
I guess I was screaming, God, what did I ever do to you? What did I ever do to deserve this? Is this one of the first times you've talked to God? Yeah, I said, you rejected me, and now you're just throwing me away. Thanks. I realize now I was sitting on my pity pot. I was. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't long before uh, the sun started coming up a little bit, just peeking over the horizon. It was getting a little bit lighter. I did not like that at all. I was comfortable sitting there blaming God, blaming anything and everybody for what was going on with me. And here it's starting to get lighter. And I literally thought, what do I need to do to make that thing go down, make it go sideways, make some clouds just covered up? I want to continue sitting on my pity pot. And I realized about the sun that I was completely powerless. I mean, there had to be some power a lot greater than I was that made that sun come up every day. It makes the sun come up whether there's a hurricane, whether uh, there's clouds in the sky or raining, or it comes up whether I'm feeling less than self-confident, less than anything. There it is. I don't know what it was that spurred me to start thinking about people that I'd been associated with in my life that had were living a life of joy, of happiness. They had wonderful family relationships. They were happy in their career, their job. Didn't make a difference if they dug ditches. If they were happy doing it, they, they saw joy in it. I knew people like that. You do too, you do too. Everybody knows people. Mm. I looked over the other side of the horizon, I realized, you know, I know some, I also know some people that uh, are alcoholics. A lot of Vietnam veterans were uh, drugs, uh, going through divorces. Here I am. I, yeah, mm-hmm. I did. Uh, just generally unhappy. There, I knew people that were find, finding negativity and everybody else and everything around them. They're just negative, unpleasant people. Mm-hmm. And they had no spirituality whatsoever. And it was like the sun was coming up and say, hey, dummy, standing there on the <laughs> beach, you might only have 12 to 18 months, which they had given me, mm. but you've got today. Now, what do you want to do? Do you want to live over here or do you want to live over here? Mm. So I promptly turned around. I said, I've got to get away from this. I was happy sitting on my pity pot, feeling sorry for myself. So I started walking, slowly walking up the beach, head hung. And I don't even know for a while if my eyes were really open. But once I opened my eyes with the sun behind me, all I saw was my own shadow. And it struck me right then and there. That's a shadow of my past. There is of the people that I'd hurt in the business world, of going through divorces, uh, the, the Vietnam experience, the families that I had notified, yeah, I have memories of it, but there wasn't one single solitary thing I could do about anything. It was all, looking at my shadows, the shadow of my past. It's all behind me. Mm. I don't know what made me realize it either because I said I had not been a big studier of the Bible, mm-hmm. but I knew who Jesus was. Mm. And I knew that he had died on the cross. I knew that 
he did us and forgave us of our sins if we but accept him. So I guess I sunk down on my knees and I realized there's nothing I can do in here. All my sins have been forgiven. So I turned around and there's that sun. So I walked back down to water's edge. And it, I literally did this. This is not was not something that I thought up. I walked down to water's edge and they probably ankle deep maybe, and here the waves are coming in. I didn't want to live. I, I didn't want to, even for one more day, I didn't want to live over there. I mean, I had money, I had, but I had zero friends. I had nothing. Mm. I had, I had not been good with relationships really up until that time. I, I didn't want to live one more day like that. Have Mike's words hit you at this yes. point? Yes. I realized that that morning, or maybe a few days after in retrospect, and I'm looking back over a lot of things, Mike saw me living on that darker side of the horizon when I was a youngster, when I was just his quote-unquote counselor. He saw that in me, that I was devoid of spirituality. He saw that I was devoid of real joy. Now, I, How did he see it? I don't have a clue. I don't know, but he did. And it doesn't matter how he saw it. Mm -hmm. But he Mm -hmm. saw it, but I ignored it Mm. for all those years. And it took this minor inconvenience of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma to make me realize it. So in 2007, you write The Power and Blessings of a Sunrise. My wife encouraged me to put my thoughts, and I fought her. I did. Mm. Uh, But she finally encouraged me to do it. I mean, it's not a long book, but why does a book have to be long if you get a message across that helps enough other people get what they want? I'll Mm -hmm. get everything I want. So in the years that in the 12 years you've written this book, what have you learned that you wish you could put in I, the book now? I I almost wish that something had happened to me a lot sooner that I could have had the relationship along before with God mm-hmm. that he had been trying to have with me all hmm. along. I just wouldn't accept it. I wish something had happened a long time ago to get me to the point with that I had then and now with God to wake up every morning. I just can't wait for tomorrow already today. I cannot wait till tomorrow because I, it, it's a mystery. What new blessings and opportunities is tomorrow going to bring? A sunrise could be clouded by confusion. It could be clouded by uh, my husband. My wife's mad at me. It could be clouded by... I've got this horrible financial problem. Well, yeah, all those things may be true, but that sunrise is still coming up with blessings and opportunities. Mm-hmm. And maybe they're clouding the sunrise, but God's still there trying to say, here it is. And I love the story about uh, uh, the young mother who took her son to hear uh, a very famous pianist now, the little boy was taking piano lessons, and she was wanting to inspire him and to 
get him really into this piano thing. And the night of the concert arrived, and they got to their seats, and the lights started to dim, and the lady turns around, the mother turns around, and happens to glance over to where little Johnny used to be. (laughs) She looks up on the stage when the spotlights come on, and there's little Johnny sitting at the piano, Mm. this... uh, the maestro's piano playing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star with its two fingers. About that time, the great pianist comes walking out on stage from behind little Johnny, and he walks over, and he bends down, and he whispers, don't stop, keep playing. And with that, he reaches around with his left hand, and he starts playing the bass part to Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And about the time he reaches around with his right hand and starts playing the treble part of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Together, the boy and the master made great music. And if you think about it, back to that sunrise coming up over the water when those rays are coming out, and you can go either way you want to, but that's just like God, God's arms, those rays bouncing off the waves are God's arms reaching out and enveloping you and saying, don't stop, keep playing. And now, dear listener, we get to the heart of what being a Rogue One is. It's not having a career we build with our hands. It's not about having a goal we must reach. It's not about wealth. It's not about fame. It's about joy. It's about having a higher purpose. We believe that our efforts will be made greater. You and I, we follow rogue paths because we seek joy and fruitfulness and something beyond ourselves. We want to get to the end of our lives and consider our time on earth knowing we sought goodness, knowing there was more to life than Instagram feeds or cars or houses or money. No, we know now in this moment that a rogue lifestyle is about seeking joy and things that are good, true beautiful. For Barry, and for many, including myself, this higher purpose is to live knowing that we were created with purpose, and that this world has purpose because it was made by a being that deeply cares for us. This is ultimately why I go rogue. So, my rogue friend, what is your purpose? Keep going rogue, and I'll be right beside you. We'll talk soon. You can follow along with my own rogue journey on Instagram at Leslie Eiler Thompson. Give a holler and we can support each other along the way. This podcast series would not be made possible without the help of several folks. First, Ryan Swinehart of Sick Island Studios in Nashville. Each episode was made better by his mastering and mixing abilities, and I'm so grateful that he joined in on this project. Several episodes were recorded by Freezer Burn Recording, also here in Nashville, capturing the audio so I could focus on capturing the conversation and the heart. Amanda Jillick of Amanda Creates designed the branding for the podcast, taking what I had and making it a million times better. Thanks to the 22 Rogues for taking the time out of their busy schedules to sit down and talk with me. And finally, thanks to anyone who decided this podcast was worth their time to listen along with as they commuted, walked, drove, or cleaned their house. I am thankful. 
Find all things Rogue Ones Podcast at rogueonespodcast.com. Now, to steal one of the best sign-offs of all time from Garrison Keeler, be well, do good work, and keep in touch. <laughs>